Hey, Crosswalk. Hey, good to see you all. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Oh, it's always a joy and a delight to be here and be able to share with you. Uh, another quick announcement. I was gone last weekend in a staff meeting this week. Uh, we were talking about something big that was going on. Um, and I asked Pastor Tim, I was like, did you tell the church that you're going to take more time for your sabbatical? He's like, no. I was like, oh, I'll do that, I guess. All right. So Pastor Tim is on sabbatical. If you remember, he kind of split it up and he took a bit of it in December. He's taking a bit of it now in the summertime. So we've got great speakers lined up for the time and he's away. You're going to be hearing from your pastoral team, maybe a guest or two. And so we're praying blessings on Pastor Tim. If you're watching, uh, blessings, rest, rejuvenation, all the things that you need to be restored and come back stronger than ever. So that's what's happening with Pastor Tim. Today Today, as Pastor Tom said, we have what's called a campus day. And if that's like a new term for you, I want to tell you a little bit about what that is. This is a day, this is a Sabbath, kind of like a week that's in between two sermon series. So we just finished a Christophany series, which was phenomenal. And then next Sabbath, we're going to begin a new series that we're calling Deep Faith. It's on the books of First and Second Timothy, and it's going to take us through the summer. So that means today is a day in between. It's a day where we could preach on whatever we would like. For our other campuses, our other sites, we like to give them this time and space to maybe bring in a special guest or do something unique and specific in their context and in their ministry. So for us here today, that means I get to share. And I remember the first time I spoke for a campus day, I was a little bit um, uncertain about what to preach on because it's like, every topic is up for grabs. And so I, I came to Pastor Tim and I was like, Tim, uh, help me, like, what, what should I do? Like, what should I speak on? And he's like, he's like, don't worry about it. He's like, just preach your best sermon ever. I was like, what? It's <laughs> like, well, yeah, there's no pressure there. But when that's what your boss tells you to do, that's what you do. So I did it. No, <laughs> this is going to be my second best sermon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so it is wild because it's like, okay, a a anything is up for grabs. But I actually have had something on my heart um, that I've been thinking about for quite a while and feeling for quite a while. So when the opportunity came to speak on this campus day, I knew exactly what I wanted to share. Now, if you know me well, you'll know that I'm a pretty joyful guy, right? And so... To, to tell you that I've had a heavy heart, maybe a little out of character, you're like, wait a second, the Joy Boy's got a heavy heart? That's not, that can't be, right? But it's true. I've had this weight, there's a heaviness. And I, I wonder if you have something similar as we look at what's happening in our world today, as we look at the, the effects of this war in Ukraine, the news this week, a shopping mall was bombed, so, so much loss and devastation there. Our nation this week has been in uproar. There's been turmoil. There's been riots taking place. There's so much happening politically here in our nation. I was looking beyond that and looking at some different statistics. The rates of suicidal ideation have increased every year in our nation for the past 10 years. At the beginning of this year, 2022, the CDC, it stated that almost 32% of females in our nation and 24% of the males in our nations had symptoms of anxiety disorder. Those are huge numbers. 15% of our nation's youth experienced a major depressive episode in this past year. In the last two years, the suicide rate in the U.S. has increased by 30%. We're now saying that this, this issue of suicide in our nation, we're calling it a major national public health issue. 
and I, I'm afraid to even talk about mass shootings, but we're halfway through this year and there have been more than 250 mass shootings by this time alone. That's a rate of more than one per day. Not a single week has passed this year without at least four mass shootings. So, so to say I have a heavy heart, I recognize that you probably feel that weight as well. And that's actually, that's all out there, right? That's a lot of that is beyond my, my life and my sphere, right? You may say like, oh yeah, that's all happening. But what about what we're feeling? What about the heaviness that may be on our, our own individual and collective hearts, right? I've got plenty of things in my life that are, are bogging me down, wearing me out, right? I've got issues. I feel uh, always like, Maybe I'm not quite measuring up. You know, we have these social media. We're looking at everybody else's life and thinking like, oh, I wish I had that or I wish I could be better. And the reality is I have all I need. I have every reason to be so, so blessed and content. And yet I feel like this tension, like judgment, critique, all these things. All these things are constantly at war within us, in our lives, right? We feel this weight. So it feels like we are constantly under attack. And I want to talk about today this battle that we're in, the spiritual warfare that we are all facing. And I want to say that we as followers of Jesus, we have the ability and the capacity to be victorious in our everyday struggle. So that's where we're going to go today. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Because I didn't prepare anything else. That's, that's what it is. Right. So this, this language of warfare is, is not necessarily unique to our uh, Christian tradition. We have, you know, for centuries, the people of God have talked about and used this language. They've been accustomed to the language of war. But it's interesting, the generous generation is not as comfortable with it. So the research is showing that uh, they're fairly removed from it. They have a lower tolerance for this language, these military metaphors. They actually prefer to talk about the journey of faith the spiritual life as a journey or more as a lifestyle, less about like a battle or a struggle, right? But for many of us, for our spiritual ancestors, this has been so common throughout history. The people of God have been really keen on this language, right? If you're familiar with the apostle Paul and his writings, he talked about how we, are, we need to fight the good fight of faith, Right? He says that we have to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. He says how the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. And he also says that we have divine power to demolish strongholds. So this is all language in scripture that we maybe are comfortable with or accustomed to, which Oddly enough, it seems kind of counter to the ways of Jesus, right? Counter to the one who was all about love, who was all about grace, who I would say was fiercely nonviolent, who actually went to the cross to die for his enemies and didn't retaliate against them. It's sort of counter to all that. But when I think about the spiritual warfare we are engaged in, this language does make perfect sense to me because it is a battle and we are constantly at war. Now, in all my preaching throughout the years, I've never wanted to like spend a lot of time speaking about the enemy, the devil. I'm like, well, I don't want to give him airtime, right? But I do think that it's important for us to spend a little time 
talking about and understanding the ways of the enemy, his tactics, so that we know how we can stand strong against his schemes. So we're going to talk a bit about three specific things, pretty fundamental things, right? First and foremost, we've got to recognize the devil is real. We've got to recognize he is hell-bent on death and destruction, and his main tactic is deception. So we're going to look at these a little bit more in depth because it's really important. The first one, everybody's like, okay, yeah, we already know this. We believe this. The devil is real. Not everybody does believe that. There's been a more uh, a common trend nowadays to think, no, 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 that's not true. That's not the reality. Uh, it is true. In, in his book, Live No Lies, the author and pastor, John Mark Homer, he speaks about if we don't have this belief or this, re, you know, understanding of the devil, the reality of evil, that we, uh, we get sideways with things. He says, as long as we deny the reality of demonic evil, we will demonize people. The very people that we are called to love and to serve. He says, instead of fighting Satan, we will turn people or even entire groups of people into Satan, into adversaries. As a result, he says, we will add more hate and violence and darkness to a culture that is in desperate need of healing. So we think about the reality of the enemy. And as we look at, you know, the devil throughout scripture, there's not an overwhelming amount of talk about him. But we do, if we look at him, all the, all the evidence, we, or there's a pretty good picture of who he is, what he does, and why he does it. So we see him being called all these different names throughout those scriptures. The Satan, the adversary, right? The evil one, the tempter the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the ancient serpent. Now, what's interesting is that these are not names. These are all titles, right? And scholars, there's some scholars that believe that this was a deliberate attempt to kind of snub the enemy, right? To, to not give him any power, showing perhaps that God's rival in this world is not even worthy of having a name. I kind of like that. There's other scholars, though, that believe that this is um, actually suggesting or showing a sign of how dangerous this creature really is in our world. They're, they're essentially saying, like, we shouldn't use his name. Like, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you probably would recognize this. He who must not be named. Sort of that line of thinking, right? Now, if I had more time... We could talk about Lucifer. We could talk about how he was an angel, a covering cherub in heaven, and how he incited this rebellion and fell from heaven and took a third of the angels with him. But we're, we're going to press on and, and look at some other things instead. Because aside from all of this, we know that the enemy has power. He has a certain degree of power. In fact, Jesus, three times when he spoke about the enemy, he called him the prince of this world. And the word he uses here in the Greek language is this word archon, which is actually a political word that was used in that day to describe the highest ranking Roman official in a city or a region in that day and age. So essentially what Jesus is saying is that the enemy has or had the most power and influence in the created world. If you remember in this story of Jesus, he, when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he, the devil, claimed that all of the kingdoms of earth were his to give. And Jesus didn't actually refute that. Right? So we know the devil is real. We know that the devil has a certain degree of power. And we also know 
that he wants to destroy us, right? In John chapter eight, we see Jesus teaching. He says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. In John 10, we find Jesus saying again here that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his MO. And then we see in 1 Peter 5, 8 that this enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour his prey. So the enemy... He wants to burn it all down, right? He wants chaos to ensue. He wants to, where there is love, bring destruction. He wants to, where there is unity, bring division. He wants to corrupt it all and burn it all down. His ways are completely counter to the ways of God. Where God stakes a claim, the devil stakes the same claim on the other side, right? Actually, C.S. Lewis, he spoke about this. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. He says, every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So he is real and he wants the worst for us. And here's the thing, he is incredibly cunning Right, his attacks on us are through deceptive means. Right, when, the Jesus, when Jesus called the enemy a murderer from the beginning, he also called him the father of lies. And he said that when he lies, he speaks his native language. So all of this, actually, these texts are an allusion to Genesis chapter three, to this original deception in the garden, right? We hear and we see here that he comes at Eve and Adam with this cunning deception and he gets her to believe a lie, right? He plants this idea in her mind that maybe, just maybe, God can't be trusted, that God is not being honest. He tricks her and what happens is she believes it. I've always been a little bit critical of this story because I'm like, didn't God just tell you the truth about this fruit? He just said this and then you go on and believe this? You believe this lie? But scripture tells us that the serpent was incredibly crafty or incredibly cunning. And here's the thing. He implanted this idea into Adam and Eve's mind. And ideas only have power when we believe them. Now, I'm sure you and I, we, all of us, we hear a lot of different ideas. We get new thoughts coming in to our minds every single day. Some of them are great, brilliant, I'm sure. Some of them are not so good, ridiculous, I'm sure, right? The truth is that we have the power to allow those to implant in our lives, to take seed and take root in our lives. And this is where we have to be careful because a good idea can sow towards life, but a bad idea will sow towards death. And the trouble is as human beings, we are very easily misled. One of the world's leading experts on deception is a man named Timothy Levine, and he has spent years doing research on deception. He has conducted countless interviews, and what he came up with in his research was that human beings are terrible at lie detection. It's not looking good for us. He actually, he came up with this theory, he calls it the truth default theory, which simply says that human beings default to truth. We assume that someone is telling us the truth unless there's sufficient evidence to the contrary. Now, in his book, Talking to Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell, he goes in on this as well. He says that we start by believing and we stop believing only when our doubts and our misgivings rise to the point where we can no longer explain them away. 
So the bottom line is, as human beings, we are easily deceived. Ouch, that is not good for us. <laughs> What's worse is that the enemy knows this. And he has become incredibly adept at spinning these mistruths. Right? Have you ever noticed that the most effective lies are the ones that are almost true? Right? They're, they're the ones that are like all, all quite almost all true, but not all of it. There's just a portion of it that's not true. If you go back and remember the story in the garden, the serpent, he spins this tail. He says, did God really say that you can't eat this fruit? And she says, yes, this is what he told me, verbatim. And he says, oh, you won't surely die, right? He says, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. He took the truth of God. He took the words of God and he distorted it. He changed it just slightly. There was just enough truth mixed into it that he was able to deceive Adam and Eve. You see, deception is the devil's ballgame, right? This is where he, he comes at us with these attacks. And Jesus and his uh, disciples, the apostles, New Testament writers, they spoke about this. When Jesus, before he went to the cross, he told the disciples, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Over 40 times in the New Testament, the New Testament writers speak about warn against deception. In 1 Corinthians, it says, do not be deceived. Colossians, it says, I tell you this so that no one will be deceived. 2 Timothy, evil men will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 1 John, don't let anyone lead you astray. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, the trouble for us, for me, I recognize nowadays is that we have so many different voices, so many different influences coming our way each and every day, right? So not all these things are seeking our ill or evil. They're not all about bad, right? But we have to be cautious about which ones we let into our lives, right? The author and the theologian A.W. Tozer, he talked about this by saying that the cause of all our human miseries is a radical moral dislocation. So he's saying here that we are off course. All throughout the world, people today are off course. Where we once navigated our place in the world by the true north of God, no longer, people are no longer using God as their bearing, as their north star, because the old moral absolutes have been called into question. Now, I'm going to do something here. It might surprise you. I'm going to quote an atheist, but you'll see why I do this here in a second. This is a historian and a leading atheist in the world today. He defined the problem this way. He said, in earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. And yes, it surprises me too that he's quoting God here, but I, I, we'll keep going. He says, today, those answers lie within us. He says, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it. Think for yourself. He says, these are some of the main humanist credos. So we're living now today in a culture of self-fulfillment, not self-denial, right? There are many forces, there are many voices seeking to lead us astray. And like I said, the enemy is on the prowl. So how do we fight back? Right, how do we stand strong against the enemy and against his attacks? Well, we've got to look to the one who's done it. 
We've got to look to the one, to Jesus and his ways and his triumphs and his practice and use of the spiritual disciplines. Right, so as we close, I want to highlight three things. I want us to highlight and look at the practice of Jesus and the way he used the spiritual disciplines. I want to talk about the power of scripture and a thoughtful life and how we take a stand against the enemy. So if you remember this story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, it shows up in Matthew and in Luke. Both gospels do this. We're going to look at Luke. It says in Luke 4, Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. This is where he had just been baptized. It says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and he became very hungry. So at this point, the enemy, the devil, he goes in, right? He goes in on Jesus. He tempts him with food, with authority, and with power. And each time, Jesus responds with a truth from the word of God. He's calm. He's confident and he utilizes these practices, which we nowadays, we term it spiritual disciplines to gain victory. Notice how many of them we find in this text, right? It says that he was uh, alone in the wilderness, a place of silence, solitude. He was in prayer, I would say, and also worship. He was meditating, he was fasting, he was meditating on the word of God, the utilization of scripture. Now, when I wrote all these down, I was not intending for it to come out to seven, but I really like that. I like that a lot. Perfect, perfect number, right? So he uses these and he gains victory. And I would say that this is a dynamic use of the disciplines. Right, utilizing these practices and all the others, there are several others, are the primary ways that we fight against the enemy. Right, we often or sometimes maybe misinterpret how Jesus was strong in this moment. Like it's easy to think about him as being weak. I, would all, I used to always think like the devil came at him when he was at his weakest, at his lowest. But I've sort of reframed my thinking on that. Sure, he was weak physically, no food for 40 days. But spiritually, mentally, I think he was sharper than ever, right? He was ready. He was poised for the attack. And he utilized these disciplines to fight back. And he shows us that the spiritual disciplines are the key components of spiritual warfare. Now, as we look at Jesus' life and his ministry, he utilized these disciplines all throughout. I love the way that he practiced the disciplines of silence and solitude. We see often... He would get away to a quiet place. He would go away for time alone with God, for prayer. And it's sometimes easy to think like, oh, that was all good. That was for rest and, and you know, rejuvenation to get refreshed and recharged. And we may, we may need that. We may utilize that a little bit. But I think for Jesus, this was not a break from the battle. This is where he actually practiced. This is where he got stronger for the fight. This was the field on which the battle was won or lost. Henry Nouwen, when he spoke about solitude, he said, it is not a private therapeutic place. He said, solitude is the furnace of transformation. So it's, in, it's there. It's in that place where we let scripture begin to shape our mind and to curate our thought life. Jesus combated every single attack of the enemy with a direct quote from scripture. Right, which shows us how saturated his mind was on the word of God. If you are feeling attacked, if you're feeling overwhelmed, 
one of the best ways that you can fight back is to set your mind on Scripture. Perhaps we need to rethink or reimagine what our usage of the Word of God is like, right? Rather than using it purely for information, maybe we need to use it for spiritual formation, right? We have to look at how the Scriptures, the Word of God, gives us strength for the battle. We need to fill our minds with the thoughts of God. We need to fill our minds with the Word of God so regularly, so deeply, and so richly that it literally rewires our brains so that we take on the mind of Christ. We think like Him. We act like Him. We have the ability to reorganize our thought life, to rewire our neural pathways around the Spirit and the truth of God. And that is our responsibility to do, my friends. Nobody else is going to do that for us. And what that means is that we must take a stand. We have to take a stand against the enemy's attacks, against the influences of the world all around us, because we believe this. What we give our attention to shapes who we are, what we think about, what we watch, what we read. All of that informs who we are and who we are becoming. It's so simple and yet it's so true by beholding we become changed. Everything that we allow into our minds has an effect and has an impact on our souls for good or for evil. So we must carefully consider our choices and how our habits, how all these things, the entertainment that we consume, how it all impacts our lives for spiritual formation or for our deformation. The poet Mary Oliver, she said, attention, is the beginning of devotion. So the way in which we stand firm in our fight and firm in our faith is to turn our attention to Christ in all things, to think of him often, to think of him deeply, to think of him richly and rightly. We have to let those thoughts give shape to our lives, to who we are and to who we are becoming. For it's when we do that, that we become more like him that we experience his love in greater measure, that we experience his grace, his peace, his mercy, his acceptance, not only for us, but for all people. This is how we fight. This is how we fight our battles. This is how we stand firm in our faith. This is how we obtain daily victory. I want to leave you with these final words from Paul, from his letter to the the believers in Ephesus. He tells them, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, Put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. So, stand your ground. Would you stand and pray with me? Almighty God, the one who stood for us, who stood in our place, the one who paved the way. We give you thanks, Lord. We give you honor and glory for showing us a way, for giving us 
this picture of how we fight our battles, how we stand firm in this war, this spiritual warfare. God, with so much in our world and in our lives, it so often feels like we are completely surrounded, like we are at a loss, we are consumed by it all. And yet the reality is your presence never leaves us. You are the one who surrounds us. You have made a way for us. You've prepared a table for us in the presence of it all, all the enemies, all the evil. And your promise remains that you stand with us. So help us to stand strong, Lord. Help us to utilize the spiritual disciplines to be victorious against the enemy in the daily fight, in the daily struggles. Guide us, Lord. Here and now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together one more time.